0: Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job, which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling, all of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, please welcome in Paul Benegieri, who is the co-founder and CEO of Archive, a stripe back company that develops software to automate e-commerce digital marketing workflows. He's a founder and operator who's done everything from building custom e-commerce platforms to deploying millions in ad spend. Prior to Archive, Paul was VP of Growth and Engineering at HVMN, running the direct-to-consumer brands, digital marketing, e-commerce, and engineering teams. He also received his Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Stanford University in three years. I hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging conversation I had with Paul. So without further ado, please welcome in Paul Benegieri. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you, man. Thanks, Brian. Excited to chat. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited as well. I Interesting background. You know, I always love folks that kind of, and, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit, kind of the transition you made, right? Going to, to Stanford and how you decide to co-found a company and, and do all this stuff. So I, w- I want to talk through that whole progression um, over the last, what, I guess six or seven years it's been um, since you left school. But I thought I'd start, and, and I don't always start here, but I actually I'm really interested in what you guys are doing there at Archive, can you give a little background for everyone listening in, um, in terms of what y'all are doing, the tech you have, and, and how for e-commerce and stuff? Because I thought that was interesting. We're going to go into that a lot down the road, but can you give a little preface up front, maybe a 30 seconds on it before we jump in the interview?
1: Yeah, for sure. At Archive, we came from operating our own e-commerce brands and businesses. And we spent a lot of time back then solving our own problems. And about a year and a half ago, started an Archive to really help you know, get rid of some of those annoyances and workflows and streamline everything for digital marketers. So we have two products for digital marketers. The first one is called Archive App. It's the first Shopify app that will automatically detect and save Instagram stories, feed posts, and reels. So when your customers or influencers are sharing this really great content on Instagram, and it's disappearing within 24 hours, then you could just let Archive App now save that for you which can be a really, really valuable asset for all of your marketing campaigns, right? Just saving that UGC, building that war chest of content is going to enable e-commerce brands to do more with with what they got. Our second product is called Archive Communities. That's more of a service where we build and scale nano-influencer communities for consumer brands. So instead of paying 50 influencers or 100 influencers, you can work with Archive to work with 1,000 or 2,000 or sometimes up to 3,000 nano influencers every month. So we're really spreading your influencer marketing bets across way, way more people, which typically leads to much stronger performance. It's hard to do because you know there's a lot of people to talk to and it can be inefficient, but we've built so much tech to streamline that that we can do it consistently really well. And that's why brands really like to work with us on the archive community side. And just to be clear, all we do is work with Shopify companies. Um, we think that it's a great platform. There's a ton of people there, and so we focus a lot of our tech on the Shopify ecosystem. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Thanks for that overview.
0: What is uh maybe? And I'm not as affluent in this uh, or fluent. I don't know why I said affluent, but anyways, whatever the word is, Um, nano influencer. What would is there like a degree of following? How how do you compare a nano influencer to what would be considered a regular influencer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. So again, what is an influencer to start off with? It's someone that has influence on a platform. You know, you're an influencer in the podcasting world. You might have influencers in YouTube or on Instagram. So if you look at Instagram specifically to define nano-influencer, they're not a celebrity like Kim Kardashian. They're not this professional influencer with like 500K or 5 million followers that just spends all day creating content for Instagram. They're kind of this cool kid on Instagram with maybe 5, 10, 20, 50,000 followers. They're sharing their life. They have an engaged following. And there are so many of these influencers because Instagram has taken everyone's life online. So compared to maybe 10, 20 years ago, where you had maybe a thousand radio hosts or a thousand total influencers in the world, you now have hundreds and hundreds of, of you, you have millions of, of these smaller influencers. Mm-hmm. So the way we define them is maybe between 1,000 to 50,000 followers. Their engagement is really, really good because most of the people that follow them, Are their friends their families so they really care about that content and trust them and i think one of the most common questions that we get when we start working with brands and start talking about influencers is well don't i want influencers with like bigger followings and it's actually like not the case so let's take a a case study for example imagine you have an influencer with a hundred thousand followers right they might have an engagement rate so percentage engagement, the amount of likes and comments of say, you know, uh, let's say 2%. So they're going to get 2000 likes and comments on average for every post. You can get a nano influencer with 50,000 followers. So half as many followers, but their engagement rate might be 10%, sometimes 20%. If they have 10% engagement rate, they're going to get 5,000 likes and comments. So even though your influencer is much smaller and they're flying on, under the radar, of all the other... Co- you know, companies, they're actually going to deliver way more value for your brand. And they're smaller, they might not have as many opportunities. So they're going to create more content for you, they're going to be more cost effective. And so we see brands moving towards the strategy of working with these small influencers consistently win and get really, really good performance.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that because it goes back to uh, I'm a I don't know if you ever read uh, I think it's Kevin Kelly's his Thousand True Fans or the the blog article or whatever like yeah because you get a lot of these like you know as as you see behind me I got the 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 Jerry Rice jersey like if I follow Jerry online right obviously you know he's a big name he's you know like you might just follow him just to follow him but like if someone's gonna follow me I don't have a big following at all. If someone's going to follow me, they probably are like, all right, I got to really believe in this guy or what he's saying, because, you know, they're like, well, I don't really want to follow him if not. So I, I agree with what you're saying. Those smaller ones really have that opportunity to make a bigger impact potentially because of, and you know, the people, yeah. people have really built trust with them.
1: And a lot of the people that follow you, they don't even follow you maybe because you're an influencer. They're your friends, they're your family. Yeah. If you buy a running shoe and talk about it, your friends are going to trust you. You're not really trying to lie to them about it. If you're talking about maybe a new food that you've tried, you'll have believability there. So instead of having like a pro athlete that you talked about, instead of having believability across maybe a specific range of things like supplements, performance, you know, training, you or me, we might have this this kind of like trust-based relationship where we can influence people based on all kinds of things. We, We can't influence that many people. But at least like a large amount of people that, that are in our network that know us, that feel like we wouldn't be lying to them about it. Because, look, we're not trying to make like 50 bucks or a thousand bucks of our Instagram account. We have other things that we're focused on. Mm-hmm. So our content is typically super authentic and there's no kind of conflict of, of, of interest and weird incentives where we want to shill too much. And that's what makes nano influences really powerful. A lot of trust, a lot of authenticity.
0: And how do you, and you might've mentioned it in passing there, but like, how do you get these thousands of folks that or makers? I'm sure the list is more than a thousand. It might be a thousand for certain brands, but like, how do you get that list of individuals? Do they sign up with you outside of that? And do you go searching for these folks? How, how do you get it so that you can share content and, and have the sponsorships and stuff like that?
1: So I'll I'll answer this question in two ways. If you're a brand getting started, how can you get your first small influencers? And then how do we do it? If you're a brand getting started, the easiest way to do it, a little bit technical, but if you go on Instagram and you follow someone, you can actually, uh, it'll automatically suggest people relating related to them. So you click that down arrow on Instagram mm-hmm. and you'll see a bunch of follow, followers that are similar. And so you can just go down that list. Or if you look at a competitor or a hashtag, you can look at their top posts and it's a really, really easy way to find those influencers. So the answer for small brands is just use Instagram, right? Like use some of their discovery features to find influencers. On our side, we have to take things to another level. We have a database of over 100 million Instagram accounts, and we have all of their data, not all of their data, but we have a ton of demographic information. We know who they follow. We know the hashtags they use. And so we've built a bunch of algorithms to source influencers within the database. I think it's like 100 million on on Instagram, 30 million on TikTok. And part of our tech is to get all of this data so we can start making informed decisions and make it easy to find a thousand influencers, right? Because for a lot of brands, that's where the bottleneck is. It's like, okay, I found like the first 100, they're pretty easy, but how do I get 500, 1000 really relevant ones? All
0: right, I'm going to, I want to put a pin in that for a minute. I want to, we'll come back to this, but I, I am curious. I want to transition slightly because I, I want to learn more about you because I'm really curious about if we went back to Stanford, if we went back, you know, whatever, half a dozen years or more. What did you What did you want to be when you grew up? Like, what was that when you are in your mind? What What did you think you were going to do? And did you have any idea of what you're doing
1: today? Was that even a, no? A, an no, I didn't even really think about e-commerce when I. So earlier on, when I joined Stanford and applied there, I had done a little little bit of mobile app development, and I was like, I'm going to get an internship at Apple, and then I'm going to go work at Apple. Oh. And then I had some friends that. Did that, and I was excited about other things, and I realized that wasn't really for me. Um, I got really excited about building things. I actually got super into crypto for a couple of years, and then randomly, after realizing that all of my crypto projects were fun, but it sucked to build things that nobody uses. That's like the Stanford curse for an engineer. You know, you're like, oh, you're top of the world. You get into school, you hear all of these billionaires are graduated from Stanford. Like my friend started DoorDash and are super successful and you're in this this bubble where you see so many developers become super successful. You're like, hey, I can just build anything, ship it, and I'm gonna make a ton of money or I'm gonna build a great business or whatever it is. What happens a lot of the times is you start solving your own problems that are very, very niche. And you do that and I did that and nobody uses your stuff. And that's kind of a painful experience, especially when you waste, not waste, but spend a couple of years building something that nobody uses and then do that again and again. And after doing that in the crypto space for a while in 2014, I joined an e-commerce company as, you know, engineer number one, it was called HVMN, it's still called HVMN. And through that experience, I just became an engineer in in e-commerce and then we realized we had to not build a bunch of features on our website to drive demand, we had to actually do marketing. So I learned about Facebook ads, I learned about Instagram, I learned about PR, SEO, and just randomly got into e-commerce, and then I really like marketing, and I really like e-commerce, so that's how I got in this area. But I had no idea; I could not have predicted it. So, when you think back, as you're like,
0: "Hey, I want to work for Apple, and I want, you know, I kind of have some of these side projects." When did it get in your mind? Like, wait a minute, I actually want to not only just do something; I actually want to run a company, and I want to build a company. That how how long before you guys actually started
1: Archive did that come into your head? Yeah, so it's, there's an interesting dynamic where I feel like a lot of people are have this goal that they want to like start a company or, or be a CEO. And I like to think that I wasn't so much motivated by that. And I was kind of just following my, my passions and interests in teams. The I had started a company right after college and it, it didn't work out. So I worked with one of my friends, Renal. We spent about a year and a half building some software. We got some customers. We did a little bit of marketing. We hired some people. Um, it was bootstrapped. So we got an experience there. Okay. And then I had no problem going back to being an employee and working for you know four or five years. And I think that was actually a really good move because I got to learn from great people, work with great people, and get industry experience that led me to a lot of insights to start Archive. What made me really excited to start Archive again was I think just the general problem space and the, the, the clarity that all of the problems we wanted to solve were real in the space. Like I spent like five years on the e-commerce side and, you know, Jeff too, and a lot of them are our early team members, we had been solving these problems for HVMN. And it was so obvious that these were problems that every e-commerce company had, or maybe half of the e-commerce companies had. So first of all, it's just like painfully obvious that we were potentially going to solve something that a lot of people would need. And then the second thing was, I was all, I'm really interested in optimization and being more efficient, and that translates to building teams and companies too. So I was really passionate and um, I would say thoughtful about how I wanted the teams I was working for, my teams to operate. And I felt like in my previous role, I didn't have as much ownership of that as possible. And one of the exciting things about starting a company is that you can really design it in the way you think is going to be best for maximum productivity, maximum performance. And I think that is a really fun thing to work on, not just shipping some apps and products that brands are really excited about and, and you know, paying for, but kind of like designing the culture, designing the teams, designing, you know, the strategy, how we do meetings, what apps we use, guides for this, guides for that. That's something that I was really, really excited about. And I, and I love having a lot of ownership towards that and kind of you know, designing that system. And two thoughts. Well, and
0: I'll kind of span a couple different thoughts, I guess, and we'll go in a few directions. Um, one, did you have any scar tissue from that first that first business not working out when you were trying to start the second one? Or like in terms of the mindset, did it did did it do you have like that fear of failure or anything? Or was it
1: like screw this? It was different
0: product, different
1: everything. Yeah, good question. Then yeah, so a lot of, we call it battle scars. Uh, we, we had a lot of battle scars at all of the things I worked on in the past and even at HVMN, right? If I, if, you know, if, if the team that founded HVMN, what, five years ago, refounded that company five years ago with our experience, probably be like, it, it our growth trajectory would be way, 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 way faster. And all of these are just lessons. I don't think any of them, Discourage me from taking risks, or, 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 you know, I never really saw them as, as a negative way, but that's what experience is, right? It's things you tried that worked, things you tried that didn't work, and starting to better understand how everything works together. I think, you know, one, one example is people say higher fast, no, higher slow, fire fast. And as like everybody, you, you, you join an econ class, you joined a whatever class and it's like the first thing or the first lesson you'll get, right? And until you've actually had experiences where you had someone on the team that maybe was underperforming for too long or you hired someone too quickly, you don't really, you don't really internalize those lessons and know what those means until you had those experience. So it's like all of these battle scars kind of help validate a lot of these lessons that you're taught when you're younger and give you this kind of like vantage or this deep, deep experience, right? That's what I think what sets about apart someone with maybe 10 years of experience versus three or four or, or even one or two. That's not to say it's required for success, but I think that's really what those, those battle scars leads to. And if you leverage those things, well, you can actually move way faster, build trust faster, but you can't let them. I mean, I don't know. Everyone messes some stuff, right? I'm sure you have some battle scars and, we're still doing what we're doing and moving on. Too many. On. We, we, the yeah. the podcast would go way too long if we went through those. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think that's part of it. It's like you learn from the experience and you say, all right, this didn't work. But, hey, and and by the way, too, I think it's also having that um, that awareness that, hey, this didn't work for maybe this reason. It doesn't mean we can't try it again because maybe we're in a different market or it's a different time. Or, you know, because when you did that other business, that was what, six years ago, five years yeah. ago, was whatever. So it's like, it's a, even a different time in the market. So, you know, sometimes timing's is important. So I, I definitely think that's important to understand them, but then obviously move past it as best as you can. And,
1: and I think the, the biggest battle scar is that just perpetuates throughout. I think any business is product market fit or not product market fit. And again, that's something that everybody will tell you when you're starting a company. Hey, do what you can to make sure you have product market fit, make sure you have product market fit this, product market fit that. But Until you've worked on a couple projects or companies that don't have product market fit, and then you've worked on ones that do have product market fit, Mm -hmm. like you could rationalize you have product market fit every single time. Like the amount of times I launched some things and saw some stuff and was like, oh, we got product market fit. We're good. We're good. And then like it fills that too many, too many times. So that's probably the biggest area of scar tissue is spending six months or a year working on something that you, as a as a human, are rationalizing to be product market fit, where in fact it's just some early indicators of maybe traction, but not a deep, deep, deep enough, you know, artery of product market fit. Hmm. What
0: did you What did you guys do for Archive to accelerate that? Then did you bring in customers early on? Did you get a lot of user influence? Yeah.
1: On? I mean, the single biggest thing we did was run an e-commerce company for five years, right? Okay, yeah, now, true. And So true. So that's like experience in itself, say, yeah. It's easy to say, do this, do that, but it's like, hey, like, we ran e-commerce for five years, and now that puts us in a really good position to, you know, build services and software and, and SaaS in, in the e-commerce space. What we did in addition to that, it was a couple of things. When we started the company, the first thing we did was talk to dozens and dozens of e-commerce operators, and we're like, and and, and This was possible because we made friends in the space and we had a network like this is hard for someone out of college. It's doable, but harder. But I called up my friends and I was like, hey, what are your top three problems with with your Shopify store? Like what keeps you up at night? People talked about logistics. They talked about demand generation and influencers and all these kinds of things. And that really helped us dial in, you know, the product and actually our top three ideas that we started the company thinking we were going to build and even started building we have completely abandoned because through conversations with customers, we found out that there's actually much more meaningful problems that we can solve. And those are kind of verified. Like we actually used to face those same problems back at HVMN, but it required some conversations to customers and some building and doing to have those insights come up and feel like a really good, you know, business thing. And then, the other thing that's really important is especially in the software side, we are being extremely rigorous proving that we're getting product market fit every step along the way. Right. So the first thing we're doing is, and maybe it's a multi-step process, the first thing we're doing is, hey, do people actually have this problem? Right. And so that's again talking to customers, seeing if they, you know, sign up, surveys, interviews, different things, see if that if they have the problem. The second thing is we'll have them try the app that we're building and be like, hey, like, does this solve your problem? And then I think a combination of those two, it's like, if the problem exists and our software solves the problems. And also being really, really thoughtful in terms of how we prove that. Like, how do we actually prove that our software or solution solves someone's problem? You need to be thoughtful about the metrics and things like that. Um, And so, you know, we're kind of like building in a very, 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 I would say paranoid way, assuming we don't have product market fit. Like doing everything we can to prove it because if we don't have product market fit and we're continuing to work on this, we're all wasting time, which is, you know, the most precious resource. Anyone I have, you have anyone on the team has. So we want to be very, very kind of pessimistic when looking and measuring it so Mm -hmm. that we can make sure we're on the right side of the coin.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and if I kind of double click on that for a minute, if we went down the path of ego for a minute, you mentioned something earlier about, and again, being fortunate, you know, using your network, having good conversations, but, and I'm curious your thoughts, or maybe it's at least advice, things you've learned is as humans though, we like to think like, yeah, I heard all these things. Cause you mentioned, Hey, we took the three off the list and we put new ones on, but in some way, deep down, we want to kind of have that ego of like, yeah but you know what i see ahead of the road that no one else sees kind of thing did that ever cross your guys mind of like well do we really want to remove this because we think this could be the next phase that no one's thinking of was that a hard battle or was it pretty easy to trust kind of the friends and colleagues
1: You had? yeah i i mean it's like look we want to at the end of the day we want to win and you're not going to win by having a right assumption on day one like who cares? Like. I, I don't know. I, I don't care if the first idea was good or bad. Like I just want a good idea. Right. right. Uh, and, and so that's how I think about it. And all I care about is winning, not really being right the first time, you know, we can, we, as, no. I, I'd rather be right the 10th time than thinking I'm right the first time. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that's something that is, is real. And, and it's like, look, if you really care about building something great, then that's what matters. And then, I think just in general we really try to foster a culture of of trying to prove that we're wrong right it's humans are biased we're always trying to be right and so we all have to be extremely deliberate in trying to get the right of feedback from peers from customers from experts advisors to make sure and and actually to help point out blind spots so that you know like sometimes the biggest win is finding out you're wrong right and then because that unlocks the most amount of learning or growth. Yeah, that's a, that's an absolute great point. Uh, when you,
0: when you guys try to start or we're about to start I, again, my curiosity always goes to, cause I think about getting started, all these folks I talk with and everyone has their, their oddball kind of like random serendipitous moment of how things started. What what were the conversations like? if If you can remember back a few years, like your co-founders and stuff? did did, Was it like some coffee, you know, talk and you're just like, hey, you know, I got this idea. Could we do that? Like, how did it kind of go from just that ideation phase and then move forward? How how were those early conversations and discussions? Was it an easy, quick move or did it take a lot of conversations to realize you guys had something?
1: Well, I would say we're a little bit different because it wasn't like someone had an idea and we tried to recruit a team. It was, we knew we had people that we had worked with. We had a founding team that was really epic that we'd worked with for a long time. Mm -hmm. We all had this e-commerce experience and we're all like, Hey, COVID is happening. E-commerce is blowing up. We want to build software for this. We're all super excited about it. So we had this constant, which was the team, the passion, the experience Mm -hmm. in the space. And then we had some ideas for what we could do there. And the interesting thing is we were initially going to do pure software like kind of Shopify app studio and then i was gonna do with with one of my other you know team members adam we were gonna do this agency to run these gifting programs which is now a big part of our almost our entire a large part of revenue right now is archive communities these gifting programs so when i was telling my co-founder jeff i was like hey like i'm excited to do these Shopify apps together I need some money on the side just to make sure that, you know, I can do this for a long time. So I'm going to start with gifting agency of Adam and we're just going to make some quick bucks, you know, while we work on the Shopify apps. And then we all just realized like, wait, actually all of our, you know, everyone's like actually asking for these gifting things. They want to pay more money for this gifting stuff than all of the Shopify app ideas that we have. So let's actually just group all together and, and and do that. So that was kind of like an interesting thing where, you know, the, the, my funding plan, which was to start an agency with with my good friend and, and former colleague Adam, actually became our first product for the larger team. And we kind of straddled Shopify apps and this service for a while. And We got so much traction for archive communities that we were just like, hey, let's abandon these apps and have our entire software team build you know software to again, build this database of influencers, automate all of the communication flow so that we can work with thousands of influencers and that became the you know core part of of archive. Hmm. Well, so if we circle
0: back then, that's that's probably a good point to get back to from a marketing standpoint. What are a lot of these brands? I don't want to say missing, but we maybe where are they the most challenged right now? Kind of understanding how to whether it's growth, you know, the, the growth marketing channels or just thinking differently in 2021 yeah. versus years past. What what are you guys kind of seeing
1: from from your peripheral? I mean, I think the general, a lot of general challenges. The first one is it's so easy to launch a brand now. Great tools. Marketing is easier that it's become harder because now it's way more competitive. So it's generally more competitive. There's also two huge issues in the space. The first one is shipping and logistics. There's something like close to a hundred container ships stuck outside of California that are just in queue. Like nobody knows what's happening. Maybe some people know, but I don't know what's happening And so cost of freight, cost of shipping has gone up like crazy. So it's really expensive to manufacture and ship now. And because of all of these things with Facebook uh, ads becoming more difficult with iOS 15, and now iOS is making email tracking more difficulty, digital marketing has actually taken a hit. So just, I mean, and this is just like any other time in history, brands have two major challenges. Number one, it's demand. So marketing, getting people to actually want their product. And the second is fulfillment. Well, how do you, you got a product, people want to buy it. How do you make a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand a hundred thousand of it without running out of stock, managing your cash flows. And so it's becoming, I mean, it's just a constant challenge on both sides, right?
0: Are you finding, you make a great point there with some of the changes Apple's making and you know, almost making it harder to target as is, is that's where you're getting at. Right. It's hard to target yeah, certain yeah. individuals.
1: Most brands we talk to are seeing severe difficulties and pain with Facebook advertising, which has constantly been one of the biggest channels for direct to consumer brands, especially on Shopify. So it's like, if you ask a hundred brands, what their top channel was three months ago, six months ago, 80% would have said Facebook, maybe even more. And all of these brands, maybe maybe not all, eighty to ninety percent of those brands are going to be telling you today that they have seen a large performance decline and just having a tough time recovering that. Where do they go then from there? What's the what? What's so the alternative? We're we're seeing a couple of trends. I think a lot of brands are well. First of all, it's diversifying your channels, right? And so that's exposed a big weakness with a lot of direct consumer brands that were growing quickly is that they did not own their audience. They were relying on platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Google, and things like that. So we're continuing to see a big shift in channel diversification. We're seeing a lot of people move to TikTok. We're seeing a lot of people move to influencer marketing, and hence why we're in a really good spot right now. Because again, if you're leveraging influencer marketing, uh, you don't necessarily have to rely on a specific platform. You, you have a relationship that you own through influencers if you're doing it the right way. Um, And we're seeing brands really invest in owned audiences. So they're taking their retention strategy to the next level. They're being really thoughtful about collecting emails and running good email programs. They're doing a really good job with their SMS programs. And actually one of the most exciting trends I'm seeing is collabs and leveraging audiences to get essentially like peaks of demand. So imagine you're a streetwear company and you're selling really cool t-shirts and hoodies. Instead of just having your brand be the creative, you can actually collaborate with other brands. You can collaborate with other influencers. Mm. You can co-create a product. And then whether it's a brand or an influencer, first of all, when you launch that product, it's a more interesting story. It's just like more exciting when two people come together or two parties come together. It's a little bit different than just like yet another limited edition flavor. And then the second thing is, you're combining audiences. So if you're a brand and you're set up for a lot of these collaborations, whether you're doing Facebook ads or email marketing or something else, you can just stack up these partnerships and, you know, kind of steal from audience one, steal from audience two. So there's still a lot of really effective ways to grow through these methods, especially when you have a lot of distribution behind that you have, you know, owned that you don't have Mm -hmm. to pay for like influencer marketing, SEO, and things like that. Yeah, that's a great point. What have you um
0: well let's I want to go, let's go to the future, then we'll go, we'll go back to the future or go back to the past. What a, if if you had if you were on the podcast two years from now, what would you be hopeful? Where where are you hoping the company goes? Where, where, what kind of expectations do you have? Are there certain goals you guys set out? Is there different products you're rolling out? Anything you'd share? Um, and maybe so two, two years, years is far,
1: from now, yeah, maybe two years is oh, too yeah. far out, but yeah, maybe in the next year or so. What are, what are you hopeful for? Oh, oh, for sure. So we're really excited about archive app right now. It's going to save it, right now. It solves a really annoying hassle for brands. You've got people creating content on Instagram, that content is dope and it disappears in 24 hours. So people are saving that manually. It, you're either like losing that content or you've got a human screenshotting it or doing something stupidly manual. And so it's like, Hey, Use our robots. They will save this content for you and give you peace of mind. Don't lose your content. And from there, what do people do with this content? They go launch email campaigns. They go launch Facebook ads. They go launch, you know, they they put it on their website, on their product page. And so what we want to continue doing is build software to automate all of these digital marketing workflows that are just not super fun, right? If you think of launching a Facebook ad... You're going to take a photo from whatever, your brand asset, your Instagram. You're going to put it in your downloads folder. Then you're going to go to Facebook. And then you're going to put the photo from your downloads folder back into Facebook. None of that is communicated. It, it, none of that is you know, connected. It's like super manual. And I've done these workflows. Like, hey, they're, they're not fun. And we're, we want to automate all of that so that, again, once you have your really nice piece of content that we're collecting with Archive app, a really nice piece of UGC for Mother's Day. In a couple of clicks, we want you to be able to launch a card abandonment sequence in Clavio or a Facebook ad for Mother's Day, right? So we're gonna really invest heavily in streamlining all of those workflows to make marketers have a way chiller time launching campaigns. And what that means is marketers can now launch more quickly. That means they can launch for more events You're not going to be like, oh, I don't have time to do this campaign for Mother's Day because you can do it in a couple of clicks. And you can also launch way more things, which means you're testing more and you're going to unlock better performance. So we really think that from Archive App, we'll be able to continue to improve e-commerce marketers' day-to-day workflows and not just make them happier and spend less time on boring stuff. But actually, that will lead to better performance as they're launching more quickly, they're launching better, and they're just running a lot more experiments and tests.
0: All right. So now let's go back. I like that a lot. Let's go back though. And I want to—I want you to kind of put your hat on of, of learning, if you will. So if someone's getting started today, and, and this could be a business, this could just be a big project they want to work on, they've never done before. Um, if you take that hat, you know, and put that on, is there anything you've learned over the last, you know, again, half a dozen plus years, maybe it was earlier in your life, that has been the most kind of resounding, it, it kind of sits up there in your head. Uh, maybe it's a quote, maybe it's an insight, anything. I, I like to say, if you had a post-it note, you know, someone can stick on their computer, look at it every day, kind of more as a little inspiration or whatever. Anything you'd share that, uh, that's that been most impactful for you? One of the
1: biggest things has been, a quote from uh, Brett Burson, who is a partner at First Run Capital. I used to work for him, great guy. He, he said, write everything down. And that is game changer. You just go from having your brain doing a bunch of stuff to your brain times a hundred or a thousand, depending how good you are at organizing things that can give you massive, massive leverage. And I think the other thing is, um, there's a quote from Ray Dalio that talks about believability weighted decision-making. And the principle is that if you're going to make a big decision and you're not experienced, go find three believable people, These are people that have done this thing many times successfully and ask them their perspective. And so instead of getting advice from me, what you should do is think about three people that could be a really good fit to crush into this project and get their feedback, get their ideas, ask them what you should learn next, ask them what you should focus on. And if you do that with three people that are believable and have done this before and triangulate what they say, you'll probably get to a really, really, really good decision really quickly. And now you might be like, I don't know any of these people. How the hell am I going to do that? Just cold email them. If you email 30 people, you'll probably get three or five or 10 that respond. And so there's no excuse to not being able to get feedback from people nowadays.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it also takes the, the approach maybe emailing instead of like, hey, can I have 30 minutes of your time? You may just ask them one question. Hey, I'm doing this. What, you, what are your thoughts? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it, it might be easier for them to respond in 30 seconds, but at least you get something out of it a little bit. For you know? sure.
1: And and I think that just shows more initiative and perseverance. Um, call it mentors or successful people, experienced people. They typically like to help people, but they don't like to help lazy people. They, won't, they, they feel fulfillment when they help someone and that person is going to do something. So if you show up and you have a document that's like, Hey, Brian, I am launching a podcast. Here's my strategy. And I have three specific questions. And you send that to Brian. And then Brian, you open this really nice doc, nicely formatted. That person clearly put the time to outline their thinking. Mm-hmm. First of all, you're gonna be like, okay, this person's hustling, doing some real work. I, I'm happy to help. You know, I I like I like to see good work in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you'll also be caught up really quickly. So instead of having to wait for a, you know, 10 minute monologue on the phone of like what that person's podcast strategy is, you can read it and more quickly give great feedback. And then you can always jump on a call from there. But, you know, writing down your questions and your decisions on paper will lead to really good clear writing that will help other people give you better feedback.
0: I want to ask one more thing about, uh, you talk about writing things down and I see the notebook behind you. I don't know if that's one you use or not. Uh, <laughs> Do you carry around, I, I heard this from Richard Branson many years ago, and I started to carry around a notebook and like, and I'll use, you know, I carry my phone. So I'll use like the notes app as well. But do you find like a certain cadence? Do you carry something around with you? Do you, do you have something that works for you in terms of writing your thoughts down?
1: I, I have different systems for different things when I'm walking around or I guess sleeping or driving, what I'll do is I have a shortcut with Siri So I can say something and I'll add it to my to-do list or my inbox. And then that's like a really good way to triage thoughts. And then for meeting notes, I have a separate system. I'll like prepare meeting notes and put them in in notion and create a doc for that. For feedback. I also have a different thing. I have a shortcut on my computer. I can just press like one key and save that feedback. I think the main thing is the more you lower the barrier to entry for whatever you're trying to save, the more you will save. And so, Let's, let's go to those examples, right? You know, if, if I have a, a Notion doc ready for my call, I don't have to be like, oh, I have to create a doc to save notes. The doc is ready there and created. Mm-hmm. If it takes me half a second to log feedback, I can do it live on a call without, you know, interrupting the call. And it makes it really easy to save. And, you know, Brian, I'm sure you have noticed that when you do carry that notebook, it's, it, you're probably more likely to write stuff in it than when you're not, right? Right. Well, and, and it's also
0: the reference back because I don't know about you, but I got shit flowing through my head. Like every second, it seems like all new, you know, like random. And then like, for whatever reason, like 10 minutes later, I'm like, Oh, what was that thought? So writing it down, I can at least look back on it, whether it's the next day, week, month, whatever, and be like, Oh, okay. And at least it kind of gathers like, okay, where was my train of thought? And I think, well, part of this too, to your point is like, also what is your what is the end game with it? Right? So for me I blog, you know, 3 times a week and obviously I put a lot of other different content and videos and stuff with the podcast so it's like I like to have those random thoughts because those might turn into like a blog article. For you, right, it's different stuff maybe to run the company and you're getting different ideas on the side, you know? So I think that's one thing to be wrong. Like, why am I writing it down? And then that might help you categorize it or use different systems to your point. I um, it might not be just one notebook. It might be a couple of different areas, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. So what I what I do is I save a lot of stuff in I use this app called Things and it goes into my inbox. So feedback, ideas, whatever, And then on a daily basis, I do this thing I call like inbox processing. I'll Mm -hmm. go through my emails. I'll go through all my Slack, but I'll also go through all of my new to-dos. And those to-dos can be anything. They could be an idea, a piece of feedback, and I'll delegate that. I'll add it to an agenda call for, you know, some people on my team that I might meet later this week. uh, So I can really kind of like batch everything up. So it makes it really easy to think of things and log it down. And then I have a process on a daily basis to just route everything to the right thing. So it's an efficient way to triage, you know, agenda items and ideas for later and things like that. Hmm.
0: That's a great point. Uh, thanks for sharing all that. Well, I think that will be helpful for a lot of folks. If everyone wants to say hello to you online, where's the, what social watering hole do you, do you uh, play
1: around in? Find me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle is my last name, B-E-N-I-G-E-R-I. Oh, just at Benny Jerry and happy to chat about e-commerce growth, company building, influencer marketing, all that good stuff. My DMs are open too.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining, man. This was a lot of fun. I know we dipped into a lot of different areas, but I, uh, I appreciate your thoughts and all.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brian. It was really fun to chat.
0: Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along in your day. If you were looking for some more resources, some more insight, you know, inspiration, things to get you going a little bit further on your journey, feel free to head over to my website, Brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter that comes out. That's more of a digest of a lot of information that I discover throughout the week, whether it's a new podcast I listen to or maybe it's a great follow online that's very insightful or a video I came across. I put that in a digestible form that you get once a week as well as I blog three times a week. And these are very micro-type blogs, one- to five-minute reads. They hit your inbox Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning and maybe give you a little dose of inspiration to get you going on your day. So feel free to sign up for those if it's something you might find as value. Thanks again for listening in. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.